I never slept well when my brother was deployed. I was nervous. I was anxious. I'm not sure if it was because of the fact that if I needed to get a hold of him, I knew I could not. I'm not sure if it was because of the fact that he, he could be in the middle of the fight of his life and, and I would have no idea. I don't know if it was because he could have died and I wouldn't have known for days. But I couldn't sleep. He told us it was going to be a short duty assignment, maybe six or seven weeks. And, and when we asked him where he was going, he said that was classified. He couldn't tell us. And so our whole family every night went to bed uncertain where he was and how he was. We'd scheduled a, a family dinner that night. And so I got home from work and, and I arrived at my mom's house and she had made food. And as we got ready to sit down, there was a, there was a knock on the door. And so my mom went and opened it and she screamed. It was my brother. And he was home. And as we got ready to have dinner, the conversation we were planning to have was pushed off the table. And we broke bread and we ate the favorite thing that we all loved that mom made. And my brother sat down and we said, tell us what you saw. And he told us about this place that he'd gone to explore. You see, he had been sent out to spy a land. To see what that land was like. And he told us amazing stories of a beautiful country, of, of bountiful produce, of an incredible place that could not only sustain our family, but our children's children's children. He turned to my mom and he said, Mom, I know you love fig jam. And he, he pulled out a fig and he handed it to her. Not enough to make jam, but enough to eat and enjoy. He turned to me and he said, Jamin, I know that you love pomegranates. So here's one. And I knew that I would love those seeds. I have to tell you, it was the best pomegranate I've ever had in my life. And as we sat there, he told us about this land that, that we had heard was flowing with milk and honey. And it was. And then he said, you know how God told us that this land was going to be our land? This land was going to be beautiful and plentiful. Well, God understated himself. Because it's bigger and greater and more wonderful than even he said. And so there was this growing excitement around the table. The meal had started not knowing if Nabi was alive. And dessert was coming, and we were thinking that this was the best meal of our lives. And I feel like my role in our family is to be the one who says what everybody else is thinking. Maybe you have that role in your life, family too. And so I turned to Nabi and I said, brother, when do we go to war? When are we going to go conquer this land? When are we going to take it for our, our own? And his face dropped. You see, I wondered when he walked in, something was off in my brother. I've known him my whole life. And I couldn't decide if he was excited or if he was disappointed. If he was happy or if he was sad. And he looked at me and he said, brother, we're not going to war. And I said, why? This is the land that God promised us. This is the land we were waiting for as we sat there in Egypt covered in sweat and dust and literally slaving away. What do you mean we're not going to go take it? You told us it was good. You told us it was better than God said it was. And he said, the people are great. We were like grasshoppers in their eyes. There were men who were eight and nine feet tall. Their cities were strong and fortified. They're well-armed and trained. If we go to war, brother, I'm going to die. And you're going to die. 
And all of us sitting here at this table are going to die, and we are going to be no more. And after those words, it wasn't just my brother Nobby's head that dropped. It was everyone at the table. And once again, I said what everybody else was thinking. So what are we going to do? And he said, well, as we were walking home last night, a few of us were talking amongst ourselves. And we decided we're going to go see Moses tomorrow. And we're going to tell him we should go back to Egypt. You see, the first time I really heard that story was in the fall of 2008. Like you, I've started to read the Bible many years and begun well in Genesis because it's like a reality TV show. Eat your heart out, Kardashians. I mean, it's just dysfunction everywhere. And you get to Exodus, and it's a great story about the people leaving Egypt, and you've got movies to think about, Charlton Heston, Whitney Houston singing. And then you get to Leviticus, and it's bizarre law after bizarre law after bizarre law. And if you make it through the bizarreness, you get to Numbers, which is the best titled book in the whole Bible. And for those of us who try to get out of math in college, it gives us cold sweats. But this year, I had to finish it because I was required to as part of my seminary class on the Old Testament. And so I opened one day to Numbers 13 and 14. And for the last nine years, this chapter and this story that I just told you have been changing my life. See, it wasn't just that I was reading the story, it's that I was living through a crisis and so were you. You see, in the fall of 2008, we had what we call the Great Recession. Clicker. If you want to click it for me, Pat. People across this country lost their jobs. They lost their homes. And many of them lost their futures. In my hometown of Las Vegas, nearly 20% of people were unemployed. One in five. The town I was living at the time, Phoenix, I attended a church where 15% of our people were underwater in their mortgage. Words like foreclosure and short sale were on the lips of every person. My friend bought a house for $155,000, and it accrued. And by the end of 2009, his house was valued at $59,000. He owed more than double what it was worth. The church I was a part of, we, we cut our salaries, we cut our budgets, we, we cut back on everything we could to try to keep the people we had employed. Here in Prescott, I mean, tourism dried up. Some of you lost your businesses. Some of you lost your jobs. Some of you moved here with a vision of retirement that began to look strikingly different. And it was during this time that I, I woke up one morning and I stumbled on an article written by a guy named Tony Morgan, who was a pastor and a consultant for churches. And he was talking about this and he was asking the question, is this, is this a great recession or is it a great opportunity? And in that article, he quoted another piece from a magazine called TechCrunch, where a man named Steve Larson had said these words. Larson said, I think the doom and gloom crowd are getting too much airtime. Look for opportunities. Difficult times are when they're most likely to occur. Constraint forces and inspires creativity. So operate not from fear, but from vision, determination, and ingenuity. And then Tony applied it to the context of his readers, like me, leaders in the church. 
And Tony said these words. He said, he was our God before the economic crisis, and he is still our God today. And that's why we have hope. And let's be clear, it's not fake hope. It's real hope for real people dealing with real challenges. Be alert. Pray for opportunity. Now is not the time for fear. Now is the time for hope. This morning, I want to burn an idea into your consciousness that's been burned into mine for the last nine years. And it's this idea. There's a place to write this down on your handout. Our big idea this morning is this. How we respond to crisis moments with fear or with hope determines our future. How we respond to crisis moments with fear or with hope determines our future. See, the story I just told you, I didn't end it. I left you hanging. We'll come back and finish it in a second. But that story was my story, and it's your story too. See, I believe each of you are either in a crisis you're walking into a crisis or you're leaving a crisis and your response to that crisis moment, if we can distill it down to a simple binary choice, one thing or the other, fear or hope, that choice will determine the trajectory of your future in the same way that it defined the future for these people. There are so many days that we wake up and we're not sure if our day matters. We're not sure if our life means anything. We're not sure if we're going to do anything that really will last. Well, I'm here to tell you that the decisions you have to make today and in the days to come are huge. Not just for you, but for every person around you. And how you respond, whether with fear or with hope, is going to determine your future. This morning, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to Numbers chapter 13. Now, if you have a physical Bible, be careful. You may cough on the dust when you open up your Bible to this section. I've never heard anybody tell me their favorite book of the Bible was Numbers. But I'm a young pastor, so I may not know very much. We're not going to read all of Numbers 13 and 14. Part of the reason why I told that story was to help us get into it. But in the book of Numbers 13 and 14, we first encounter a man named Joshua, and we discover a crisis moment that impacts the trajectory of the nation of Israel forever. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to share with you a few thoughts about what I call the context for courage. Because let's be clear. If we're talking about being courageous, that assumes there's a circumstance that we need to be courageous in. I know that's a world mind-blowing idea for you this morning, but, but you may be in a situation today that demands courage, a situation where your normal and natural reaction is fear, a situation that you didn't plan on, that you don't feel prepared for. That every time you think about it, your pulse starts racing. A situation that you laid in bed thinking about tonight, last night. That you woke up this morning early thinking about. It's been occupying your mind. 
And I believe that's the place that God wants to encounter you this morning and show you from a story buried in a part of the Bible that you never, ever read. That this is the moment that could change your future, depending on what you choose. And the first thing I want to tell you this morning about the context for courage is that God calls us to courageous faith, not naive optimism. God calls us to courageous faith, not naive optimism. There's this myth that's floating around our world that following Jesus means blind faith and obedience. And this story right here explodes that myth. Because if God wanted blind faith, then in verse 1, he wouldn't have told Moses to send men to spy out the land. He would have just said, go. To a land that you've never been to, to fight a people you've never seen, to take what you know nothing about. No, God calls us to courageous faith, not naive optimism. And many of us, when we hear the word hope, that's how we define hope. It's stick your head in the sand and think happy thoughts. Naive optimism. Instead, when you read the very first part of Numbers 13, the story that I just shared with you, what you discover is that God called the people to go into the land and take a detailed account of what they were going to face. To study it. To bring it all to bear, the good and the bad, the amazing produce and the terrifying people. A cluster of grapes that was so large that two men had to carry it on a pole between them. They don't carry that at Whole Foods. <laughs> and to go look at people who made Shaq look like a short guy. Men who were nine feet tall. Strong, fortified cities defended by professional armies up against a people that had never fought a day in their life. You see, wherever the place is that you feel pushed today, wherever you feel afraid and anxious, the context of your courage, what I want to tell you is that God is not calling you to naive optimism, to stick your head in the sand and think happy thoughts, or to follow God blindly. He wants you to look at that situation and face it with all of its particularities and complexities. See, hope does not deny reality. Our hope defies reality. See, hope, it doesn't involve us denying what's true to stay positive. That's naive optimism. That's idealism. For those, some of you who've been around this long, that's Pollyannaism. No, hope defies reality. It says, I see all of that. I know all of that. I've written it down. And yet, I believe in a God who is greater than that. And for these people, they were going to be called to believe in the God who showed up in miraculous ways in their life, even as they were standing on the edge of their need for the next great miracle. So the first thing I want you to know today is that God calls us to courageous faith, not naive optimism. If you have your Bible is open, why don't you turn to verse 21 of chapter 13. We'll read a couple verses. We'll bounce around a little bit. Beginning in verse 20, this is what we read. 
It says, so they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab near Lebo Hamath. You're all going to envy me having to read these names out loud for the next five weeks. Now go down to verse 27. It says, and they told him, the spies, they told Moses, we came to the land to which you sent us and it flows with milk and honey. And this is the fruit. Verse 28. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Anak was this legendary mythical giant. And if you've heard stories from the Bible about a man named Goliath that's killed by a small shepherd named David, he's a descendant of Anak too. Now scroll down to verse 31. In verse 31, they said, then the men who'd gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. The second thing I want to tell you with the context of courage is that fear puts our focus on the size of our problem rather than our hope in the provision of God. This is the difference between fear and hope. Fear focuses us on the size of our problem, while hope focuses us on the provision of God. And that's the difference we're going to see, because we're going to learn in a little bit that there was a split, there was a break in how two groups experienced this promised land. One group that I just read their words talked about the bounty of the land, but the size of the people, and their summary was, we are not able to go up against the people for they're stronger than we are. See, they were responding out of fear, and their focus was on the size of their problem, this enemy people who occupy the land. And that's the difference between fear and hope. When we are responding out of fear, what we do is we naturally pull back. I don't know about you, but if I see a rattlesnake, my first step is back, not forward. Same thing with tarantulas. And so I step back. Whatever it is that you're afraid of, when you see that thing, your instinct, without even thinking, is you step back to create more distance. And then you become fixated on all the things about that fear that make it unassailable undefeatable, difficult, overwhelming. When we spend our times not just being afraid, but choosing to live in fear, we fixate and obsess on the size of the problem. And our imagination kicks in. And even though many of you are not five years old anymore, you still have an imagination. How do I know that? Because when you lay down at night, your, pro- your problem grows. It gets more scary. You create situations in your mind that are literally unbelievable. I know this because I do too. And the, program, the problem morphs and it changes and it grows. The other option is to put our focus on the hope we have in the provision of God. And in this story, for me, that provision is summed up in this massive cluster of grapes. Like, I love grapes. I love the red ones. I love the green ones. I love drinking grape juice. I love grapes. I even grew up drinking grape soda, which now sounds disgusting, but I loved it when I was a kid. And these grapes were so huge that somebody like Nobby, the the man from the tribe of 
Naphtali or Joshua or Caleb. They had to carry it with someone else for a long distance. I think I'd remember that. And they weren't focused on the provision of God. Someone asked me recently, Scott, what's the difference between fear and hope? Well, fear moves us away from the thing that we're afraid of, the problem, but hope moves us toward it. And if you're trying to decide when it comes to the challenge you're facing, am I responding with fear or am I responding with hope? You can know that by what you're physically doing. If you're stepping back and going like this, I'm going to guess that you're afraid. And if you're stepping towards it and you're leaning in, I'm going to guess that you're choosing hope. And one of the saddest things for me as a pastor happens every morning when I go on Facebook. Because I see people who claim to be followers of Jesus, who literally is the hope of the world. Who are called to be salt and light, people of hope. And yet all throughout their feed, it's fear, 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 fear. Fear politically. Fear racially. Fear economically. Fear relationally. The people that I sat with and sang about, our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is higher than any other. And I scroll past fear and I scroll past fear and I scroll past fear. We're supposed to be the hopeful ones. And yet so often we are fixated on the size of our problem and we are the ones who are banging the drum of fear. And the reason why is that we spend all of our time focused on the size of the problem rather than focusing on the provision of God. Which is why some of you need to turn off cable news. Because you will not leave it more hopeful. You will leave it more afraid. That's why they want you to keep watching. Because every commercial break, they feed you one more fear to stay tuned for. That's why some of you need to take a break from social media. Because it's not making you more hopeful. It's not focusing you more on the provision of God. It's focusing you more on what's broken and wrong in the world. Look, they killed our God. He was wrongfully arrested. He was wrongfully tried. He was beaten and murdered. So let's not expect to live in a world that throws a party when we walk in, thinks that we're the greatest, and is on our side for everything. But at the same time, let's not obsess over what's broken and wrong. Let's put our hope and focus on the provision of God. I got to keep going. That's a whole sermon right there. Number three. Number three is God speaks to us through bold minority reports. God speaks to us through bold minority reports. As I said, I just shared with you in verses 21, 27, 28, and 31, the summary of 10 of the spies. 10 of them came back and said, the land is great. The people are huge. We shouldn't go. But two of them gave a minority report. Now, this is not Minority Report, the 1998 movie with Tom Cruise. This is not that. It's a report that's given, that's a contradiction of the other report, and it's given by two men. Their names are Joshua and Caleb. And one of those guys is going to be our subject for the next five weeks, the guy Joshua. If you were to ask me who my favorite person is in the Bible, I would say Jesus. Well, duh, you had to choose Jesus. Next would be Joshua. Because Joshua's story is my story. 
And his struggle is my struggle. And God's message for him is the message God has brought to me again and again. Somebody asked me this week if I, should, if I could give an example of a, a story or a situation where the minority report was believed and taken, and I couldn't find any. You see, most often what happens is that people like Joshua and Caleb give a minority report and it gets ignored. JFK was shot in Dallas in 1963, and one of his cabinet members went to Dallas a month before and came back and told JFK not to go. And he went, and he was killed. In the mid-80s, there was an engineer for NASA who said they shouldn't launch the space shuttle when it was below freezing because the O-rings wouldn't hold. And one morning, the space shuttle Challenger was on the tarmac getting ready to be launched with the whole nation watching the first woman go to space, and they ignored his warning as the temperature dropped below freezing and then came back up, and many of you who were alive watched the Challenger explode in the sky. In South Japan, there was a nuclear engineer who warned that the foundation underneath nuclear power plants in Japan would not hold in an earthquake. And so when an earthquake happened in the Sea of Japan and a tsunami came into Japan, the Fukushima nuclear power plant flooded and an epic natural disaster took over the attention of the world. Most of the time, we don't believe minority reports to our own detriment. And the same thing happens in Numbers, beginning in chapter 13, verse 30. It says, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go at once and occupy the land, for we are well able to overcome it. He had faith. He saw the provision of God. If you're looking at your Bible still, turn over to verse 14, beginning in verse 6. And Joshua, the son of Nun, Nun was his dad, just by the way, terrible name for a dude, but moving on. Um, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied the land, they tore their clothes, which was a sign of grief and mourning and heartbreak. It says that they said to the congregation of all the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. They gave this report that said, we are going to trust in God and you should too. The God who delivered us from captivity and slavery to the most powerful nation on earth. Who gave us their wealth as we left. We went in as the poor and we left as the rich. Who parted the Red Sea for us to walk through. Who then drowned the entire Egyptian army in that water when it came back. That God will provide for us. They gave a bold report And one of the things their report did was it was a claim of a promise of who God was. And if you're in a situation today where you feel scared and afraid, then you're going to have to claim who God is in that moment based upon who God has been in your past. And here's how I would say it. That the God who moved in my past can be trusted with my future. In the places where I'm nervous today because I'm not sure how things are going to work out. In the place in my life where I'm not sure how a situation is going to play out and I feel very not in control. 
I'm beginning my days, even I did this this morning, claiming the God who has moved in my past, he can be trusted with my future. Because God's done amazing things in my past. He's done amazing things in your past. And if you believe he can be trusted with your future, then you can step forward towards whatever you're facing today with courage. But if you don't believe that the God who moved in your past can be trusted with your future, then you're going to keep stepping back. You're going to keep choosing fear. The fourth point, and I don't really have a scripture reference for this, I'm just going to make an observation, is that even people who experienced miracles can lack courage. Even people who've experienced miracles can lack courage. We tell ourselves this myth, and I do this too, that if we could have been there with Jesus, we would have such bold faith. Man, if I could have been there when he fed the 5,000, if I could have been there when he made that guy who was blind able to see and that, that man who was lame walk, if I could have been there when, when Lazarus came out of that tomb smelling like death, man, I would believe. If I'd been there next to Moses when the Red Sea parted and two million people walked through, I would believe. We lie to ourselves. We lie to ourselves. You say, why do I know that? Because these people who walked through the Red Sea, who were there for the boils and the frog and the locust and the river turned to blood and the sky turned to darkness and the firstborn boy of every Egyptian family, those who ate bread from heaven and waves of quail, they still doubted and wanted to go back to Egypt. And even people who've experienced miracles can lack courage. Some of you have seen God move in miraculous ways and you were courageous yesterday. Well, guess what? Yesterday's courage doesn't work today. You need new, new courage for today's challenges. Some of you had faith because you saw God move in the past. Well, you're going to need new faith today. You can't rely on the faith and the courage of yesterday. You're going to need new faith and new courage for today. And even if you've seen God move in miraculous ways, and you go, why do I struggle to have courage? Because you're just like the people in this book who saw God move in miraculous ways. The 12 disciples, they followed him around for three years every day. And when push came to shove, they all ran away. One betrayed him and one denied him. They lacked courage. And so don't condemn yourself. Don't shame yourself. Don't beat yourself up if you're lacking courage today. You're like them. But also don't miss the opportunity that's in front of you. That you can choose courage again. Let's bring the story to a close and talk about how it resolves. Back in Numbers 14, this is what we read. This is God speaking here. He finally gets a word. He says, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, Moses, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness 
And of all your number listed in the census, 20 years old and upward, who've grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. The fifth and final lesson I want to share with you this morning is this, that lack of courage brings consequences. It's a really sobering story. Every person other than two who chose to side with the ten spies and not Joshua and Caleb, they would die in the wilderness. The land whose promise had sustained them in slavery, they would never see. Their kids would go there. Joshua and Caleb would go there, but they would die in the wilderness. Interesting, ironic thing. God says it's going to be 40 years of wandering. That's one year for every day the spies were in the land. They were in the land for 40 days spying it out. They chose not to believe, and so they would wander for 40 years. And let's be clear, it didn't take 40 years to get from Egypt to the promised land. It took a matter of weeks. I don't know about you, but one of the things that happens to me when I walk through a graveyard is I think about regret. There are nice engravings on the tombstone, husband, mother, friend. But I think about the people whose bodies lay in the ground underneath where I'm walking. And I wonder what kind of regrets they had. There was a study that was done a few years ago about regret. And what it found is that in the short term, all of us regret the bad decisions we make. You know, the hair we had in that high school prom picture, you know, or the suit we were wearing. That, that, that word we said that we shouldn't have that bad decision we made, that moment where we go, what was I thinking? But over time, those fade. You know what regrets last? The opportunities we missed. The chances we didn't take. The things we didn't have the guts for. And somebody else did. That article that I told you about from Tony Morgan, in that article, he put a little piece of clip art in there. And I'm not sure he even noticed it. I met him earlier this year. He's become a friend of our church and somebody who's helping me get better as a leader. And in that piece was a, a little image. It was like a knob, like in your shower. It said the word fear on it. And it challenged me because I began asking, am I turning the fear knob with my life? And the same way I get up in the morning and I'm, let's just do a quick survey. Anybody a hot shower person in here? Raise your hand, hot shower person. Okay, you're my people, okay? Where are you cold shower people in here? I do not understand you. It is already cold outside. Why would you want to be cold inside? It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. But, but as I go in the shower every morning, I did it this morning, as I turn it to hot, I was reminded, am I choosing fear today? In your bullet this morning, there's a little card, and I want you to pull it out. It looks like this. I've had this image in my office every day since December 22nd, 2008. And nearly every day I've had a conversation with myself, Scott, are you choosing fear or hope? Because we can't control whether we're afraid or not. If I see a snake, I'm going to be afraid. 
But that's different than choosing fear. Choosing to live in it. And over the next five weeks, I want you to put this image up somewhere where you'll see it. I hope every moment when you get in the shower, you see this thing. And are reminded that there is a choice in front of you with the crisis that you're in. And you can choose fear or you can choose hope. I laughed with Moffat a little while ago because this was the guy that he met nine years ago. I had, I had a beard. I call it a beard because I'm being generous. Um, but this Scott was choosing fear. This Scott was choosing cynicism and bitterness and anger and despair and disappointment. And because of these knobs and this story, A, I've learned to give up on the beard and shave. (laughs) And B, I've started choosing hope. And it has changed my life. And I want to help it change yours. On the back of your handout, there's a couple of reflection questions I want to run through before our time runs out this morning. And the first one is this. Where is your numbers 13 moment today? What's that situation in your life where you're challenged to be courageous, where you have a crossroads, a decision to make, a circumstance to interpret? You see, the spies saw the exact same land, and 10 of them chose fear, and two of them chose hope. It could be happening in your house right now. You and your spouse are experiencing the same thing, and yet you're choosing to interpret it differently. Where is your Numbers 13 moment today? Number two, are you turning the fear knob or the hope knob? What decision are you making today? Which one of these are you choosing most often? And before you say, I like a lukewarm shower, so I'm turning both. I know you're in this room and you already thought of that. I'm on to you. This is not one of those choose both Because when you choose both, you choose fear. You dilute the hope. So which one are you choosing? And then number three, in what area is God calling you to be courageous? I don't want to spend the next five weeks in Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges looking at Joshua's life, having a theoretical conversation about courage because I think we all have circumstances where we need to be courageous. Let's talk about those places and let's pray that God helps us to become people who are courageous. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this message, for this lesson, for this life. And God, all of us are, are facing circumstances or will face circumstances or coming out of circumstances that are overwhelming. That we want to pull back from that we're laying in bed at night thinking about and waking up in the morning thinking about things that cause us anxiety and worry and angst. And God, those are the very places that you do your best work. And so we pray that in this season that we would not only see our world through your eyes, focused on your provision, not the size of our problems, but that each day we would wake up and choose again to be people of hope and courage. Our world is drowning in fear and despair and worry and anxiety. 
they're waiting on hope. And we have the greatest hope in the world. Someone who doesn't need to be elected or polled about. Someone who, whose character is unassailable. Someone who has been, is, and will be. And so this day, we choose to put our trust in you, both now and in the future, believing that the God who moved in our past, you, Father, will continue to be trustworthy with our future. And so we come today asking you to begin a new work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.